Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2021, volume 59, number six. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cabe, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we're going to talk about the content of the June issue of DTB. Uh, We're recording this on the 11th of May and in a week's time we in the UK get to the next phase in our relaxation of COVID restrictions. So things like social distancing, rules will change, uh, in particular the rules on hugging. Uh, I wonder how quickly we're going to embrace the act of embracing again. James, do you think we'll go hug crazy or will it take us a while to get used to handshakes? Yes, it'll be interesting to see whether we go back to handshaking before things like consultations when we meet face to face. That'll be the interesting thing, whether people will re-embrace handshaking or whether that's going to be a thing of the past. And what's the state of general practice? Have you are you cautiously opening up and allowing patients back in or what's what's happening? Yes, yeah, so we've we've actually decided to move to being very open as much as we can with the size of our waiting room. The problem we've got is our waiting room's got about 15 chairs and that's normally fine, but uh, we've need to take out at least a third of those and there's no way we can see 100 people a day with only five chairs in the waiting room. So we're having to be sensible and stagger some stuff, but we've actually moved all our duty doctor work now to uh, face-to-face it's uh, cutting down the demand that we have from patients who want to see us oddly enough if you tell someone that that's fine the doctor will see you this morning at 10 o'clock they suddenly say oh well, I'm a bit busy then actually do you mind if can't I just get a phone call from him later and we say no no you, this is urgent you must come immediately and it has reduced demand so that's an interesting issue we found that definitely phone calls have increased demand from people uh, it's very very use, you know it's very easy for them it's um something which they like and it's something which has definitely made us busier we're definitely in the in the sort of next phase of the uh, pandemic aren't we and things are improving um, we got some feedback from the survey that we ran recently where people commented that we sounded very depressed about the whole state of affairs um so we can be more upbeat now ah oh i'm terribly sorry yes immediately a bright a bright future Excellent. So at this stage of the last few podcasts, we've talked about topical issues, and that's largely been about the vaccine and the rollout of the vaccine. This month, we're not going to talk about the vaccine, but you did want to just touch on something to do with the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Um, Well done. You've got the new four-letter acronym correct, because that has changed. Uh, Yes, this is about NICE, and they've got a new strategy going to change their approach to particular technical appraisals and they they want to get faster they want to get smarter they want to really work much more closely with uh, the important players in the life sciences and it's clear that what they, they want to play their part in this definite move by both government and pharma to create this virtuous circle of the nhs lots of data being used by pharmaceutical companies, life sciences companies, all this new medical technologies to create and improve the health of of the population. And obviously also become a really vital industry for the UK. So it's very positive, but of course it wouldn't be the DTB if we weren't just a little bit anxious about how close bedfellows this might create with NICE and pharma. I mean, the 
concept is great, isn't it? And, and as we saw with the pandemic, when the systems work together and the speed with which the vaccine, I said I wasn't going to mention the vaccine, but I have, the vaccine rollout happened and it, well, its development and then its rollout, clearly there are lessons that, that there are ways of speeding this up. But I agree with you that there is just a slight alarm bell ringing, isn't there, that you, how close should the relationship be between bodies that actually approve or authorise the use of a drug for the NHS and those companies that are producing the drug. Yeah, and we've seen this with the big, you know, European medicines agency, similar issues. You know, they've gone down the road of accelerating uh, drug approvals. And uh, I think we did something with the ISDB on this and showed that only about a fifth of drugs that have been accelerated through end up being cost effective or effective at all. So I think we've just got to be careful and just be aware that this is really good stuff. And and I, for one, am really pleased that there's this talk about using real world evidence. This is going to be the, the latest buzzword, R-W-E, real world evidence, which basically means it's looking at things like the clinical practice research data link, the CPRD data, and actually using that as a way of examining health and examining the outcomes from the use of, of medical technologies, drugs, etc. So it's great, and I'm really positive about it, but I'm also just slightly cynical. And the um, maybe we ought to talk about this at a future in a future podcast. This the whole issue of real world evidence, which which is you know is great in terms of using all that rich data that we've we've gathered over over the years. But there's a balance, isn't there, between how it's used and not removing high quality clinical trials from the approval process of medicines, and seeing where real world evidence fits into maybe accelerating how we adopt medicines, but perhaps not in their licensing. Absolutely right. And I was a little concerned that actually the strategy actually, I think, does talk about RCTs versus real world evidence and sort of makes out that perhaps there's no need for RCTs in quite the same way as they used to be. And, you know, I think this is this is a difficulty. I think it's quite interesting. I think a lot of people have worried about the NHS becoming privatised. But actually, I think what we're seeing is it's becoming commercialised. And this is an example of that. And if it means that we develop an incredibly good health system, that's fab. But I, I suppose for me, it's a bit like uh, this is may not be a very good uh, analogy, but I think it sort of works. Cars are all built by private companies and they're all really safe and they're all really good on the whole. So actually, it shows that privatisation working with industry can create some great things. But of course, it might be you're not you don't actually want to use cars at all. It might be that we should all be on bicycles or walking. And I think that's the problem I have a little bit with NICE and this is it's it's actually creating an, an industry which is based around building things to treat diseases. Whereas perhaps what we ought to be doing is being better at preventing diseases and being more public health conscious about, you know, what the, the inequalities are that create ill health in the first place. And that doesn't necessarily include pharma. And one last thought, and we, we talked about this at an ISDB meeting that we were both at. There are concerns over organisations such as the EMA that relies on income from pharma companies. Obviously, pharma companies pay for um, their drugs to be, be assessed. And the question of whether it begins to skew priorities, because obviously, if you're reliant on that income, does it have an effect on the decisions that you make? Because obviously, if you start turning down every single drug, you are not going to get that income stream. Now, at the moment, and I had a quick look at this. 
NICE gets about three and a half million pounds towards its technology appraisals and about two and a half million for scientific advice. And that's against an expenditure of almost 70 million. So it's only about eight or nine percent of its total expenditure comes from, from that. But as that grows, does the relationship begin to change? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point. I think Ben Goldegger had a term for this, didn't he, which I can't for the least bit remember. But yes, I think a very good point. Okay, thank you for that. For this issue of DTB, we're going to talk about the editorial, uh, look at stepping down asthma treatments, talk a bit about managing diabetes and pregnancy, and then finish off with this month's case report. So our editorial this month is written by Joanna Gerling. What's it about? So Joanna Gerling is really just just looking at COVID-19 vaccination and pregnancy, and is just really reflecting the missed opportunity there was in this situation. The fact that actually, she actually basically, and I think it's quite right, she just describes, it's a sort of discrimination around prescribing in pregnancy and the fact that no one ever does the trials correctly to make sure we know what we're doing there. And in the same way, perhaps it's been the same issue with the COVID-19 vaccination programme. So right from the start, women who were pregnant were excluded from the trials that were done into the vaccine. And you can understand a certain caution about uh, this new vaccine. And, and but, but we've had enough experience, haven't we, from developing drugs and, and there are ways of doing this safely. It might, might be slightly complicated, but there are ways of including pregnant women in, in trials. I agree. But as, as she points out, worse than that was that even now that we are vaccinating pregnant women, actually, we've not put in place the sorts of data collection that would allow us to have an ongoing monitoring of the situation with regard to pregnancy. So we've missed the opportunity. Even now, we've started uh, to, to vaccinate. So I think that's the point she's making, is that really, we need to Remember that pregnant women make up a significant proportion of the population. We know that actually with COVID-19, they were more seriously sick if they developed COVID-19 than than women who weren't pregnant. So there are health issues here that we, it's too easy to ignore and just say, oh, that's too difficult. And actually there are lots of things we could be doing that would improve the monitoring of pregnant women when we treat them and as a consequence then know more quickly how safe or not a possible treatment would be. And particularly in light of the uh, report that came out last year, the first Do No Harm report, which looked at valparate mesh implants and pregnancy tests and the impact that had on, on the harms that they caused to women and acknowledged that actually the systems themselves ought to be set up so we record all data of how these products are used so that we can track them and know whether there's a problem from a very early stage. But but again, as you say, that didn't happen with the COVID vaccine? No. So, I mean, it was, it was quite interesting in the sense that when we started uh, using Pinnacle software, there was no way of, of monitoring it. Then very quickly and quite rightly, I think the government added ethnicity into the Pinnacle software. So we would be recording that. And I think that was very important to make sure that we weren't missing out on really important uh, ethnic groups. But uh, there's no pregnancy button. Uh, you know, that wasn't done. And I think, you know, that's that's the missed opportunity here, really. I mean, there are lots of reporting options, yellow card. Obviously, there is a voluntary inadvertent vaccination in pregnancy notification scheme. And there's also now a UK obstetric surveillance system that's been put in place, which has been collecting data from February and March. But it's all come a bit late. And I think, you know, as Joanna quite rightly says, 
Um, and Baroness Cumberledge, as you say in the report from last year, made quite clear the importance of information systems that monitor in, in innovation you know, is key. And this is one area where perhaps they've just taken their eye off the ball. Okay, thank you very much. In one of our select articles this month, we're looking back at a study on the prescribing of asthma drugs. Um, quick recap, what did the paper cover? So this was a big, big population-based observation study. Over almost half a million patients uh, looked at. These were adults, and I think that is quite important. And what they basically looked, over about an eight-year period, they looked at medication for asthma and the proportion of patients that were stepped down from their treatment during that time. And sort of headline findings about the, the proportions of people who are on, I suppose, the higher level of preventive medicines, had that gone up or gone down? So what they found was over this period, and it was 2001 to 2017, the use of medium or high dose inhaled corticosteroids or add-ons such as long-acting beta agonists increased from 50% of the population of the treated population to 68%. So there was a significant increase in the use of medium high inhaled corticosteroids with add-ons. And over that time, did was there a, a move then once controlled to step people down? Well, this was this was the thing. They found that actually 50% of those on medium or high doses stayed on that dose during the eight years without any step stepping down. Only about 40,000, which I think was about uh, a tenth of the, the number, actually were stepped down in that period. So th their, their issue here was, you know, we're probably over-treating a lot of asthmatics because they, they took a small cohort of, I think, 125, and they stepped them down and found that there was no issue with increases in exacerbations for the year after that period. So they felt that we're missing out on the opportunity to step down patients on asthma medication. Now, from a, a primary care perspective and a, a GP who, you know, who's got patients with, with asthma, do you think that this is... A reasonable conclusion that we could, we could be doing more or it has there been a tendency over the last few years with, with, with the uh, development of guidelines the new versions of guidelines and the pressure to increase our control of asthma does it feel reasonable that actually people should be on higher doses so i you know the more i looked into the study and i actually went back to the original paper as well the more i looked into it the more i just thought this gets more and more complicated because you're absolutely right first of all we've got the, the constant berating over the last two decades or even three that GPs undertreat asthma and we've got to do better. And we had the Royal College of Physicians report, Why Asthma Still Kills in 2015, which berated us for, for not, you know, really getting hold of certain um, uh, patients with asthma. The other thing that was interesting, and I think this is a really key part to this study, actually, which I don't think they've clocked. There's a huge shuffling around that went on in that time scale with new preparations of inhaled corticosteroids. Lots of new licensed preparations, lots of different types. And I'm not sure that GPs really clocked the low, medium and high strength element to a lot of these inhaled corticosteroids. So I remember certainly the micronized beclomethasone, I think a lot of us didn't clock that that was actually a much higher strength. And what's interesting about this study is they use the categorization of inhaled corticosteroids from the 2016 BTS guidance. So 
that the low dose, medium dose, high dose that they use, the categorization they use actually came out in effect after the study had been done. So I wonder how many GPs were even aware of what the categorization of their patients was. So I think there's I think there's a big flaw in this, but I think actually what what they you know their 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 summary I think is absolutely right. We need to be looking up patients with asthma and and always asking ourselves, are they on the minimum dose to keep them symptom free? And we should be making sure that we're recording that and and you know making sure our records and the asthma management plan actually reflects that. But actually, I I just think the study's got a bit of a flaw in it with regard to you know, medium and high and low strength inhaled corticosteroids. It does feel as though it's another example of how primary care and the prescribing systems are set up to add stuff and maintain stuff, but but not so good at prompts and reminders and all the processes in cutting it back down again. Well, definitely. I mean, let's be honest, you know, we haven't got enough capacity in general practice. So if someone says to me, oh, my asthma's great, doctor. You think, well, do I really want to make it not great? You know, I think the same could be said, although it's a different issue. But, you know, imagine if every time we met someone who had whose blood pressure was perfectly controlled, we said, well, let's stop one of your tablets then just to see if we were giving you too much. You know, the difficulty with that is we then just create a huge amount of extra work. And, and I think one of the issues has simply been that there's been an awful lot of work. And if you're a well-controlled asthmatic, you know, it may be that the priority is not, actually about stepping you down it may be the priority is about trying to get the people who aren't controlled much better controlled now of course there was a a part of the paper that calculated cost savings around well actually if you did step people down and they were well controlled you would release quite a bit of money but of course it's that old problem of is that money then available to do the sort of work that you're talking about or is it all this problem of compartmentalized budgets and and it's in the prescribing pot and not the the staffing pot Exactly. I mean, you're absolutely right. They talked about it's about 16 million, I think. And, you know, it's not it, that's that's not to be sneezed at. But um, I just wonder what the costs would be for for staffing to, to achieve that. I think it's, it's, it's a difficult one, but I think it's one it's worth reminding ourselves we should be looking to step asthmatics down. Remember, these are adults, remember, which I think was quite important. because I think they did point out about 11 percent of the population they were looking at had conditions which actually we might be aggravated by high doses of inhaled corticosteroids, such things as glaucoma and diabetes. So I think there is another element to this as well. It's not just the asthma. It may be that we need to be thinking about the other long-term conditions that patients have. Okay, thank you very much. Main article this month looks at prescribing for diabetes in pregnancy. Um, Brief highlights for you. This is a really very thorough look at the management of diabetes from preconception through pregnancy and perinatal and postnatal management. It is very comprehensive, very useful article and really just reminds us the importance of good diabetic management, not only one pregnant, but also before. And I think this is a bit, you know, for primary care, the things that you know, I thought, oh, yes, you know, they're saying every time you see a woman of childbearing age who's got diabetes, you should be asking about pregnancy intentions and contraception. 
And we must remember that these patients need really good control. If you have a HbA1c of, I think it was 86 millimoles per mole, if you have HbA1c of 86, there's a 10% risk of a congenital abnormality in your child. Now, this is really important stuff. We need to be thinking about high folic supplements, Preconceptually, we need to be thinking about aspirin from 12 weeks of pregnancy. We need to talk about stopping statins if they're taking them during pregnancy. Look at their antihypertensives. There is so much to do. And this article does it very well, I think. And it's one of the key themes that's been through all these articles is it's almost what you do before before a conception is is vital in terms of setting the platform for for how the pregnancy proceeds and and it's getting that bit right as well as doing all the bits around managing the condition during pregnancy and it's using as you say every opportunity to talk about preconception advice as well as as well as what happens during the during the pregnancy um any any drug issues yes so so really good look at the evidence for metformin in um, the management of uh, type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes and uh, joanna's team look at the mig trial from 2008 which compared metformin with insulin so metformin really interesting not licensed for use in in pregnancy but it's been endorsed by nice and sign all other oral hypoglycemic agents are not recommended and then also the team talk about uh, insulin and the use of continuous glucose monitoring and the concept study published in the Lancet in 2017 so it's all there it's all um, really good stuff and definitely well worth a read to get together with all the other prescribing and pregnancy series Okay, thank you very much. Uh, and finally, this month, a case report, um, still on the diabetes theme. Uh, this was, well, you tell me, what was it about? So this is a 43-year-old woman, non-insulin dependent diabetic, who had been on empagliflozin for two months and was admitted to A&E with euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. And uh, I think everyone now is aware that the flozins can cause this issue. I think what was interesting about this case report is that it seems as if this episode was triggered by her starting a ketogenic diet about two weeks prior to her admission. And as you say, this is something that, well, there's something the MHRA in the UK have warned about. I think it, I think it was 2016-ish. There was a drug safety update saying that this is a risk. This Certainly this euglycemic version of diabetic ketoacidosis is seen with these with these drugs but like all things you know these alerts come out and unless you're conscious of them you, you tend to forget that they've that they're about they're around yes and i think for me and i think this is probably useful for for those of us who don't see much euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis let's be honest it's not something that walks in every day so this woman presented with a one-day history of nausea and vomiting a cough shortness of breath generalized weakness no fever, pulse rate was 130, blood pressure normal, 115 over 80, blood sugar level 9.4. Now, I think, you know, in the past, if I'd seen someone like that, I might think, oh, she's got a bit of a chest infection, perhaps got some flu-like illness, because the blood sugar level of 9.4, I'd have thought, well, it's not going to be anything diabetic related. She did have glucose and ketones in her urine. So I think from GPs who haven't got access to all these clever blood gases issues, which, you know, will give you the answer. 
it's just down to good old fashioned medicine, you know, test the urine of a diabetic if they come in feeling poorly, test their blood sugar and remember that you can still have seriously sick diabetics with quite normal looking blood sugars. In the MHRA review, which was based on, or came on the back of the European review, noted that it was sort of a, a rare effect, but they put the numbers at between one in a thousand and one in one in 10,000. And they talked about, you know, blood glucose levels you know, around or below 14 millimoles per, per liter. So as you say, it's a, an atypical presentation for diabetic ketoacidosis, but, um, and therefore requires as that detective work to, to make sure that you've, you've thought of everything. Yeah, it goes back to their old adage. If you've got someone you don't quite know what's going on, just look and see what tablets they're taking. Because <laughs> so often it's the medication what done it in. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtpbmj.com. Uh, you can also find our back catalogue of, of podcasts on the same site. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. Uh, you can find a link to the DTP iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, email us your thoughts at dtp at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for July's podcast. <laughs>